the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to today's podcast, sponsored by Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. I encourage you to take advantage of the many free online courses there. And, of course, to listen to the Hillsdale Dialogues, all of them at Q for Hillsdale.com, or just Google Apple, iTunes, and Hillsdale. Hillsdale understands the importance of education to the future of our country, and they want you to as well. So they are offering you 10 free print copies of the recent issue of Imprimus, entitled Education as a Battleground, written by Hillsdale College President Larry Arndt. The special issue of Imprimus provides a factual account of the issues in the ongoing battle over education, explains why parents and teachers, not bureaucrats and activists, should guide what our children are learning. Don't miss the opportunity to arm yourself with the facts. Claim your free copies, 10 of them. Education is a battleground, the Imprimus issue you cannot miss by visiting Hugh forhillsdale.com. That's Hugh for Hillsdale.com. Act now and join the battle over education for our country's future. Good morning, America. Lots happened over the weekend. Uh, I will be playing, I'll be taking calls about the Knucklehead Caucus. Matt Gates has decided to burn down the House. And I want you to understand if the motion to vacate succeeds that he's bringing because he hates Kevin McCarthy. And it's a personal vendetta for Matt Gates. Matt Gates. Narrowly avoided prosecution by the Department of Justice for trafficking a 17-year-old across state lines. And there's some allegations of illegal drug use as well. But that doesn't shut down the House Ethics Committee, and the Speaker can't do anything about that. But Matt Gates wanted the Speaker to shut that down, and he can't shut it down. And there are reports, not yet confirmed, that the Ethics Committee is going to recommend the expulsion of Matt Gates. I don't know if that's true, but I know Matt Gates is acting like it's true. And he's drawing attention to himself and to the underlying allegations about him and the 17-year-old and to a long record of irrational and irresponsible behavior. So to divert attention from that, Matt Gates is making a play to vacate the chair. Speaker McCarthy has done a magnificent job. He continues to do a magnificent job because he's got to represent the entire 221 members of the GOP caucus, 210 of whom are solidly behind him. All right, 210 of whom may disagree or agree with him on a particular issue, but they know he's a great speaker. Moreover, they realize if you take McCarthy out right now, the entire House uh, Congressional Campaign Committee falls apart. They lose their engine. People just say, forget it. You guys are going to go back in the minority. You're a minority party. You can't control knuckleheads and outlandish, bizarre people like Matt Gates. And so he's basically Gates. And Marilyn Matt Rosendale, the carpetbacker from Maryland who's gone out to Montana to run for Senate, Matt Rosendale and Gates are trying to bring the whole House down because they no longer care about the House. They want to run in Gates's. Uh, Gates doesn't want to get thrown out of the House because he wants to run for governor in Florida. And Rosendale wants to be senator, so they're going to burn down the House to get there and send out fundraising. And it's everybody knows this. All right. This is not a secret. I told you about it. But Matt Gates is raising the stakes. And it's going to bring a motion to vacate. And Matt Gates is hes not crazy. He's just a very bad guy. All right. A very bad guy. And the idea that, oh, I'll just burn down the entire House majority because I've got to divert attention from my own tawdry behavior and the ethics committee. That's that's that. So I'll get back to that. Gavin Newsom named a new senator last night, Senator Feinstein dying last week at the age of 90. Um, Gavin went to Maryland and found um, LaFonza Butler. Now, this would be like Mike DeWine appointing me if Sherrod Brown quit. Uh, You know, I love Ohio. I watched the Browns yesterday be ridiculously bad because Deshaun Watson's rotator cuff is injured. Somebody mentioned Bursa sack. Oh, gosh, please, not that, because it's $250 million out the door. And I like DTR, the rookie from UCLA, but he played a horrible game. He played a rookie game. And while that was going on, and so if I got named senator from Ohio, yeah, I could move back to Ohio and be a senator. But that's what he did. He named um, LaFonza Butler, 
who is the president of Emily's List, the most radical abortions group in America. That's what Gavin did. She's black, and she's going on the, on the, into the Senate because Gavin promised to appoint a black woman. But it, what he's really doing is appointing Adam Schiff. Because if he appointed black, uh, Barbara Lee, she's running for that seat. And now people are going to be completely confused about what he meant and what, what's going on. Barbara Lee would have meant a black senator for California for eight years, maybe 10. She's 77. She wouldn't have been there a long time, but she would have truly been. Gavin basically screwed over all of his black constituents and got Adam Schiff elected yesterday. I mentioned the shutdown has been averted. Um, and I mentioned three headlines. Gates says he will move to House McCarthy for working with Democrats. House prepares for next hurdle. Efforts to oust McCur- McCarthy as Speaker. Matt Gates plans to vote to oust Kevin McCarthy after Speaker avoids shutdown. Now, there are 221 Republicans. You can lose four off the bat and have 217 votes still with you, which is enough to beat anything that goes on against you. However, however, many Democrats do not want Leader Speaker McCarthy removed. They may vote present. I doubt they'll vote for him to remain as Speaker because they're Democrats. But they also, some of them want something in return. Other people just want, like, normalcy. They just want to go to a normal situation and take control of the wheel away from the Gates caucus. The, you know, knucklehead caucus cannot drive, and they cannot make the House move. All they can do, they're wrecking balls. And so I expect Speaker McCarthy to survive easily, but that's... That's the big story. I'll come back to that after the break. I'm going to take your phone calls on the Gates Nuttery when we return. 1-800-520-1234. Hi, everyone. If you've been injured in an accident that was not your fault, listen up. We have legal professionals standing by to answer your questions for free. Call now and find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Call 800-702-5400. I'm here with spokesman John Wolfe. So, John, tell everyone listening who should call right now. Well, Maria, first off, thank you for having me here. It's always nice to answer the listeners' questions. Now, as far as who should call in, anyone who's been injured in an accident and think you deserve compensation, give us a call right now. 800-702-5400. You'll find out if you have a case and how much it's potentially worth. Thanks, John. You heard it, folks. Take advantage of this opportunity and call now. 800-702-5400. Advertisement sponsored by Legal Help Center may not be available in all states. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt inside the Beltway. Selena Zito is inside the Pittsburgh Beltway. Good morning. Is there a Beltway in Pittsburgh, Selena? I don't think there is, but tell me if I'm wrong about that. Good morning, sunshine. There isn't really a beltway in the way that you, you know, think of DC, but there is this belt system that circles the, uh, the city that's done with, uh, color coded, uh, signs and nobody uses it. So. Okay. Good to know. Because if Pittsburgh built it, I knew it wouldn't work. Uh, Selena, I saw Kenny Pickens got hurt. So my condolences to the last Steeler fans out there. You are writing a three part series. About the election. You want to give us a preview of this? for the, And they're all available at Zito Selena on the site formerly known as Twitter, now known as X. Yeah, it's a really fascinating site. So in my never-to-be-humble opinion, there are three sort of silos of voters that are going to matter going into the primary season, but also going into the general election next year. And they are the ride-or-die Biden voters, the ride-or-die Trump voters, and the voters are like, I don't want either one of them. And, and so I kicked it off this Sunday with, uh, rider by, die Biden voters. And what I thought was most interesting in that these voters, the things that Biden talks about all the time, Bidenomics, um, climate change, green energy, green jobs, uh, and, and book bans, things like that. He, they, that meant nothing to them. They didn't care about that. And I think we need to remember that voters tend to form a bond with a, with an elected official or a politician 
over very personal things they believe to change their lives. And for these Biden voters, a lot of those were like a bridge in their town got fixed that was out for two years. Even if he had nothing to do with it, but because he's at the top, he's the president now, he gets credit for it. Uh, the insulin um, uh, with the, with the health care, also very, very important, especially to rural voters who don't have a lot of access uh, to hospitals. What about the fact that he's barely able to do an interview with John Harwood? Uh, it was an incoherent interview with a hand-picked former journalist who now, I guess, is sort of with ProPublica. But John's a lefty, and everybody knows that John is a lefty. Got let go at CNN, got let go at CNBC. And Joe Biden, wrapped up in in uh, bounce paper, still couldn't do an interview. Does that, do the ride or die Biden voters notice that, that he's not, that he's enfeebled? They're very defensive about that. And, and this is a quality we see in Trump voters as well. This is not unique to Joe Biden. It's not unique to Trump. In particular, if a voter believes or feels that their candidate is being attacked for no reason. I, I had a woman in that, in the Biden story who said, well, my 95 year old sister can do crossword puzzles. So, you know, I'm fine with Biden's age. And, and so it's very hard to argue them off of that place because they take something personal to them, apply it to the politician, and it becomes church, right? It becomes their belief. You know, Selena, when you run into one of these ride or die Biden people, I want you to ask them the question which I've been using as a good a good way to get people to focus on this. Would you let Joe Biden run a concession stand at a high school football game or volleyball game? Dwayne is running the concession stand right now for his his volleyball team, high school volleyball team. And it's a complicated bit. It takes eight adults, six hours each to make one hundred and twenty dollars. But that's what we do in America. Would you let Joe Biden run a concession stand? I mean, be in charge. That is a great question, but you got to remember, people project. They project themselves. They project a family member. So you're probably going to get the exact same answer. You know, I don't know. When you bring it down to the reality of complex functions, and a concession stand does have 30 or 40 elements that you've got to execute. Do you sell dots? By the way, were you a dots, uh, a, a good and plenty, or a Twizzlers person at the movie, Selena? Not, and I didn't like any of them. I don't Not, actually have a sweet tooth. Um, but I ran concession stands for both of my kids' numerous sports activities. I get it. It's I, I did, too. So that's why I'm trying to I yeah. think it's a common ground deal. And I don't think America yeah. would let Joe Biden run a concession stand anywhere for any sport at any time. Uh, you, you would think, but it's been a fascinating couple of weeks reporting this, these, this series out. I can't wait and to report the next two ones. It's, uh, it's really interesting inside the psyche of the American voter. So you've done ride or die Biden. Next week is ride or die Trump. And next week is I hate them both. <laughs> yes. Yeah. The, right. But you boil it down to the most perfect scenario. Uh, we will be watching. And if you want to read everything Selena writes, go to uh, selenazito.com, get her newsletter, follow her on the site formerly known as Twitter, at Zito Selena. She did that funny thing there where she switched her name back. Zito Selena on Twitter, now known as X, or just sign up at selenazito.com for her newsletter. I'll be right back. Hour number two, America. First broadcast day of the month time. Stay with us. Good morning, glory, America. Bonjour, hi, Canada. I'm Hugh Hewitt. First broadcast day of the month. And I'll come back and explain what you're listening to in a bit. But I asked Philip Balboni of Daily Chatter to join me this morning because we had an election in Europe over the weekend. Not many people know about uh, Slovakia, uh, Philip. And I saw that on Friday you had written about Slovakia. Now we have an election result. Do you, do you want to tell us why we care about Slovakia's elections? I, I think I know, but it's I am unfamiliar about everything about Slovakia, except what the Daily Chatter taught me. <laughs> yes, well, it's, you know, it's, it's a country of about 6 million people. It's the size of Massachusetts. I'm talking to you from Boston, as you know. 
so um, there was an election over the weekend, and uh, there's going to be a new prime minister. And uh, the new prime minister, Mr. Fico, um, happens to be a, from a left-wing party, but he is pro-Russian and against the war in Ukraine. And the current uh, prime minister of Slovakia has been very supportive of the war. Um, they have given military aid uh, to Ukraine. So this signals the possibility of a frontline state because they are bordering states, Ukraine and Slovakia, will have a change of policy. Um, already in the neighborhood, Hungary is not supporting the war. So it's a, it's a matter of concern for those who support um, the war in Ukraine. Now, Ukraine is, of course, surrounded by Russia and Belarus, uh, both of whom participated in their invasion, by Poland and Romania, who are very strong allies of Zelensky, and then by, as right. you mentioned, Hungary and Slovakia. And I've really never paid much attention to Slovakia. I think there are seven parties that cross the 5% threshold. Is there no way to keep FICO or FICO, whatever his name is, out of office, Phil? He has to form a coalition. He didn't get a, a, enough votes, his party, to take power by himself. So he has to put a coalition together in the parliament. Um, analysts think that will be possible, but it might not be. And there'll be a lot of jockeying and, and negotiations, you know, in coming days. So it's still possible he, he will not. Well, this is why I want people to get the daily chatter from Substack, and that's especially high school kids and their teachers, because if you've never heard of Slovakia and you can't find it on a map, Philip handily provides you a map of Slovakia in Friday's edition. Now I want to turn to this morning's edition, Phil, because I didn't know about the number of people who vanish every day in Mexico. Do you want to fill us in on why you led the week with that astonishing story of the vanishing people of Mexico? Thank you, Hugh. 25 people every day are disappearing in Mexico from drug cartel-related violence. Uh, it's an amazing figure on our neighbor to the south. I mean, obviously, we know um, how important Mexico is in the production of drugs, the transit of drugs up into our country, uh, you know, whether it's cocaine or now fentanyl. Um, but the corruption that has been engendered by this river of money is, seems to be unstoppable. I mean, President Lopez Obrador um, came into office promising that he was going to deal with this problem. He has not. Um, I mean, it's, it's just shocking. Uh, and I wish I could say that there seemed like a way to solve it. But multiple presidents now uh, have failed to uh, rein in the cartels. You know, Philip Balboni, the average American who watches Breaking Bad or Ozarks are familiar with the cartels as the shadowy organizations that sort of live independent states in very violent times, but they're really unaware of how big they are and how powerful they are. Do you, you may have listened to the last presidential debate when Nikki Haley suggested time for us to use special forces to take them out. Is that realistic with a neighbor to our South who is a, a giant trading partner of ours? I mean, is it realistic to think we're going to send special forces to Sonola or any other of the Mexican provinces to take out cartels? That's one heck of a good question, Hugh. Um, I heard her say it. Um, I think our special ops guys are capable of, of doing considerable damage to the cartels. Uh, maybe they're the only ones who could because uh, not that the Mexican military and they have some very good people there uh, or even the DEA aren't very, aren't very good. And there are many who are honest, uh, but um, I don't know. I, um, you know, I haven't thought deeply about it, but um, I would consider it if I were president, I would, I would think about it because, you know, we're Americans are dying every day from this problem. Mexico has proven itself incapable of dealing with it, and um, it might be an appropriate mission for our special ops guys. Now, Daily Chatter is very sober, very fact-driven. It is not from the left or the right. It's actually what's going on in the world. My question, compared to other failed states around the world, do you think Mexico is a failed state? I think, I'm sure you've been there, I've been there, um, 
when you're there, it sure doesn't feel like a failed state. I mean, they have a strong, very strong economy. They have wonderful people. You go to Mexico City, it's an incredible place. Uh, you don't feel unsafe. So, I no, I wouldn't say it's a failed state. If you want to look at a failed state, and we're going to write about this later this week, look at Libya, um, a country that has two uh, governments that are, are at war with each other. It's a transit point for migrants, refugees from Africa on their way up to Italy and other countries in Europe. Uh, just unending violence. And then, of course, we remember what happened in the city of Derna, where all those thousands and thousands of people, a dam broke, they got washed out into the Mediterranean. That is a failed state. Our neighbor to the south is not, but there are serious problems there. The, the reason I bring that up is that nobody, to my definition of a failed state, is you can't trust whoever says they're in charge to actually be in charge. And I can't trust anyone in no. Mexico because you mentioned the money. It's the money. The money is so it's enormous. Everybody's on the take, right? Not everybody, but a lot of people are on the take, and you have no idea who's on the take. Exactly. You can just assume that the police and many in the military are taking money from the cartels because this goes on and on and on. Those drugs still keep coming up here. And, you know, the DEA has been working on this for, a, you know, 10, 15, 20 years trying to stop this, and they have not oh. been able to do it. Phil, longer than that. I joined the Department of Justice in 1984, and we were running its thing out of the AG's office and the DEA and the FBI against uh, cartels. And so it's a 40-year war, and we're losing it. We've lost it. My question is, and I want to close here, that database of people who are disappearing, are Mexicans okay with this? Is there no way for them to vote uh, and securely vote for standing up to the cartels? No, they're not okay with it. There's so many brave people, journalists included, who have been uh, trying to expose the corruption and uh, find the missing. You know, those 43 students we wrote about this morning who died in 2014, killed by the military and the cartels. They're, you know, their bodies have never been found. Um, and there have been people who have been fighting all these years to expose that crime. Um, 25 so people a, a day. People it, it's yeah. astonishing. 25 people a day. There is a database. Phil links to it. Phil, I want to make sure people know how to get, especially students and their teachers, how they can subscribe for free to the Daily Chatter, or if they're just someone who wants to be smart about international affairs in a very, very quick but comprehensive fashion, how do they find the Daily Chatter? Just go to dailychatter.com. It'll be easy for you to find if you are a student, high school or college or a teacher of those students, we provide our subscriptions for free. If you are not, it's very easy to see where you subscribe. It's only twenty nine ninety five a year. We'd love to have more of your listeners. Uh, Philip, thank you. We'll talk next month. I love the Daily Chatter because things like happen in Slovakia, I have no idea. And then Friday filled me in. Maybe Philip will be covering the Poland election soon. I hope he will because I'm not quite sure what's going on there, too. They had a huge million-person march in Warsaw yesterday. Philip Balboni of Daily Chatter. Thank you. DailyChatter.com. Somewhere beyond the sea. That music means America. The Admiral James Stavridis, retired United States Navy, former Supreme Allied Commander of NATO and Southern Command, joins me. Good morning, Admiral. How are you? Up. You're in our mute button. Somebody left a... They're there. Okay. So, Admiral, uh, I think we fixed it on our end. Last night, I walked... A, a Marine officer and Hugh Hewitt walks into a bar to have dinner. And unfortunately, they're different bars because we did not communicate together. And so the Marine Corps officer and a professional communicator ended up miles apart. And so we're going to try again on Tuesday. The reason we're getting together, and this is a long setup, by the way. How are you? Couldn't be better. Okay. Doing lovely... Headed to New York City. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry to hear that. But let me read to you what we were going to talk about. He had, he had heard Seth Crosby uh, write about navalist matters, and he said that Mr. Cropsey opens his article by asserting that the balance of forces in the Pacific does not favor the Chinese in a conflict. He continues to say that we could lose our qualitative edge over time, but I do not believe we have it now. That's the Marine Corps officer. The navalist perspective is that the qualitative military edge for our maritime platforms outweighs the numerical strength of the PLAN, but that only goes so far in a truly joint fight when determining the CCP's military objective. 
It does not account for how a conflict will likely start in Southeast Asia, and it does not count for the lack of our interoperability with our allies. What do you think, Admiral? I think there's a lot of truth in the in the second statement, the what you called the navalist one. Um, I, I think that yes, China has more warships, as you and I have discussed, over 350. We have less than 300. But uh, quality matters in a fight. And if you ask me, I'll give you a real metric, real world metric. You ask me, okay, Admiral, which hand of cards would you rather play in this uh, particular fight? I would, I would reach for the U.S. for exactly the reasons outlined. I think a second point that's kind of threaded through your commentary is our joint warfighting ability. And uh, yes, it will be a joint fight. We're pretty good at that at this point, at knitting together air, sea, land, special forces, cyber, space. I, I think I'd give us a significant advantage there. And then third, you mentioned allies. There it's uh, some pluses and some minuses. The pluses, obviously, the Japanese bring very capable warships, Aegis, uh, surface combatants, superb diesel submarines. The Koreans are not bad. The Aussies are not bad. That can help ease that quantitative point. But on the other hand, as you said, and I'll close with this, um, the interoperability the, are there. We have not trained the way we have in NATO. We've got work to do there. The Koreans and Japanese still don't even like to train or exercise together. Work to do there on the interoperability with the allies piece. But overall, bottom line, I think the U.S. still enjoys a slight edge overall. My friendly neighbor, Marine Corps friend, went on to explain to me there's a difference between integrated, which I always say we're integrated with our allies, and interoperable, which I didn't get because I'm a civilian dummy. And would you explain that to the audience? Because I found out that's a very key difference between saying we're integrated with our allies and interoperable with our allies. Yeah, it's actually a kind of a technical difference, uh, but it's an important one. Integrated means the will, the intent. We've exchanged liaison officers. We've done a, a, a fairly reasonable level of looking at each other's doctrine. We've operated together somewhat. Interoperable is a whole higher level. That means our radios are talking to each other. Our data link systems are talking to each other. Our space communications is linked up both in high space and all the way down to the surface of the ocean and down below it. Um, it means that our logistics chains are together. We have interoperability, exceptionally good interoperability in NATO with our NATO allies because we spend enormous amount of time. Here's the real point, looking at the metrics, looking at the facts. Um, you, are, uh, you are integrated um, almost immediately, politically, you go out and operate, you have the same objectives. Interoperable is the work of a decade. All right. Now, let me turn to the other subject we were going to talk about last night when we were not together, and we will talk about tomorrow night when we are, which is why we support Ukraine. There are a lot of reasons to support Ukraine. He made me aware that Ukraine produces 30 percent of the world's wheat and that if Russia gets control of that wheat, it gives them another asset that compensates for their declining military prowess. I hadn't really thought about wheat blackmail before, but it's true. Has that ever come up in you in when you were NATO Allied Supreme Commander about how much the world depends upon Ukrainian wheat? Yes, absolutely. And it it lies alongside as usual there's some good news and some bad news. The good news is the other major producers of wheat are the United States of America. Uh, Canada, uh, Brazil produces a lot of wheat alongside a lot of rice and a lot of corn. It's a huge breadbasket. There are some, uh, if you will, Western nations that, that produce a, a hell of a lot of grain. It's really not just wheat. It's really all these grains. The bad news is, this is why Putin is so obsessed with Ukraine from an economic perspective. The other huge grain wheat producer, of course, is Russia. So if Putin were to get control of Ukraine, he would have control of, of a, over almost 50% of the world's supply of wheat. 
And that is extremely significant. And final thought, we know he is critically aware of this, Hugh, because how is he using the Black Sea Fleet today? He's using it to strangle the Ukrainian ability to export that wheat. In effect, Putin has already shut down a significant chunk, and that really is uh, food blackmail. It's using food as a weapon, and uh, this is something that Putin very consciously is doing in this conflict. And yes, it's an important part of the reason Putin wants Ukraine. So this trampolines me over to uh, Slovakia, and I've never been there. I'm sure you have been repeatedly. They have elected a new government. Looks like a pro-Russian premier will be coming in. What does that mean to you, Admiral? Uh, it worries me, and it is an, yet another indication of the, the support for Ukraine just starting to crack at, at different ends of the spectrum. And we'll come on a moment to how it's looking in the United States. But what you're discussing in the capital city of Slovakia, Bratislava, which I have visited many times, has elected a man named Robert Fico, F-I-C-O. And he is, uh, I think it's fair to say he's pro-Putin, pro-Russian, uh, anti-the West, anti-Ukrainian. Um, it's going gonna, it's gonna to create a real challenge for NATO and for the European Union because he will lead that government in a direction that's very out of step with the rest of Europe on Ukraine. Um, the only other similar kind of government, not as bad, is over in Hungary, another important country in that region. Um, and, and there you, you see uh, a long-term figure who's been in power, who's kind of uh, not quite as far to the Russian side of things as FICO is in Slovakia. So it's, it's quite worrisome. Again, let's keep it in perspective, as we should here in the United States as well. Um, of the 28 um, EU, European Union nations, of the now 32 nations in NATO, 90% of them will continue to be fully supportive of Ukraine. And, and finish with this, Hugh, here in the United States, we just saw uh, a vote which took out the Ukrainian aid. But if you really look at the numbers there, um, I think you will find a pretty strong center that's going to hold, certainly in the Senate, I think also over in the House of Representatives. I agree with that. Um, and so, I, yeah, I think that's a, a given. But I want to go back to Slovakia because it ties back to my interoperability and integrated. Does NATO have to cut off if the guy's a Putin puppet and he is? Uh, Fico sounds like he's just a Putin cat paw. Does NATO have a way to stop him from telling Putin what we're doing? Uh, not in a immediate sort of throw the switch kind of way. And, and, you know, we have gone through this, frankly, with Turkey, which is not anywhere remotely pro-Putin, pro-Russia per se, but certainly with the purchase of the S-400 air defense system from Russia by Erdogan of Turkey, NATO was faced with these kind of choices. And what we did was, we sort of throttled the information flow going to those air defense systems so that they were unable to, to be interoperable. The S-400 is not interoperable. It's not linked into the NATO system. I could see a scenario with Slovakia, which, let's face it, is a much, much less capable nation militarily. I'd put them at the very bottom of you of uh of NATO militaries in terms of what they bring to the fight. But I think you're going to see the intelligence get throttled down uh, significantly. And I think your point, that conversation is happening right now in Brussels and Mons, where the Supreme Allied Commander headquarters is located. You know, and, and that's my last question, Admiral. If you were still head of, of, of NATO, what do you do right now when all of a sudden the government flips from being your ally to being the ally of Putin? I mean, what, what do you actually order up done? You can't, like, put them in a different well, room. The first thing you do is you meet with the senior military and you get a sense of where are their heads in this whole thing. And so uh, what the Supreme Allied Commander is doing, I would guess, General Chris Cavoli, I know him well. He's very smart, very integrated with his counterparts. 
He's picking up the phone and calling the chief of defense, the Chad, we would say, uh, in Bratislava, Slovakia this morning. And just he's in listen mode. He, the supreme allied commander. How does this look? What's going to happen? Are you going to change your alert levels? Um, what's going to happen to your defense procurement? Um, are you going to pull everything back from supporting Ukraine? So at the military to military level, there's a whole additional channel that is very, very important. And it's one that uh, General Cavoli, I'm sure, is exploring this morning. Admiral James Stavridis, follow him on the site formerly known as Twitter, now known as X at Stavridis J. And have a good trip to New York today, Admiral. Always good to see you again. Thank you for joining me. I like having smart people on when something like this happens, like Philip Alboni and, and Admiral Stav, because, you know, you look at a headline, you have no idea what it means. What it means is all of a sudden we got to look at our back door and find out if the information we're giving to Ukraine through the front door is going out the back door to Russia via a now compromise and maybe soon to be complicit uh, Russian ally inside of NATO. It's complicated. Stay tuned, America. I'll be right back on The Hugh Hewitt Show. When the government used emergency edicts during COVID to restrict the gathering and worship of churches, three pastors facing the risk of imprisonment, unlimited fines, and their own churches being ripped apart took a courageous stand and reopened their doors in the face of a world that chose to comply. The Essential Church is a feature-length documentary that explores the struggle between the church and government throughout history. This fascinating story uncovers those who've sacrificed their lives throughout history for what they truly believe in. Rediscover why the church is essential and how we prove that this stand remains true from a scientific, legal, and most importantly, biblical perspective. This is not your typical movie. It'll change your life. You need to see this movie with your friends and family. The Essential Church is streaming today exclusively at SalemNow.com. That's Essential Church, streaming at SalemNow.com. Morning, glory, America. Bonjour. Hi, Canada. It's first broadcast day of October. And I always kick off our fundraising effort for Alliance Defending Freedom on this day. And I'm asking to become a champion for freedom by going over to HughHewitt.com. You'll probably have to do it on your desktop. Uh, we haven't got it quite working yet on the uh, handhelds. But over there at the top, you're going to find a banner that says, be a champion. If you join that, $19 a month, and you'll keep ADF in the field for the entire year. One-time contributions are welcome as well. We'll take as much as you want because we got a lot to do this year. David Cortman, uh, Senior Litigation Counsel, Vice President of Alliance Defending Freedom, longtime friend of the program, joins me. Good morning, David. How are you? Uh, good morning. I'm great. How are you? I'm good. Now, David, there's so much happening this term at the court. I'll let you pick your favorite case, but I do want to talk about O'Connor because it's a parent's case. O'Connor Ratcliffe versus Garnier. Can we start there before we spread out to which ones you like the most? Yeah, absolutely. It's your show. That's where we'll start. Okay. Tell us about O'Connor Garnier. So it's interesting because we, we hear a lot these days about um, censorship and canceling and blocking and this is an interesting mix because in these cases, in fact, the court took two of them, one out of the Ninth Circuit, one out of the Sixth, where basically public officials use their private social media accounts, but they do it for work, for government business. And so when there's someone that criticizes them or they don't like what their constituents say, they block them. And the question in these cases before the Supreme Court is, is that government action where private officials can challenge that for violating the Constitution? Now, Brentwood Academy controls, but Brentwood Academy is a, uh, I'll see, I'll know government action when I see it. To me, this is open and shut, David. This looks like state action to me. What do you think? Well, it's interesting. It may be, but the question is, is what's the test, right? So the, the, the circuits have disagreed, and, and there's kind of two general tests that's out there. One is a lot easier to find state action, and that is just look, look at the purpose or appearance of the site. If you're talking about work and it's about your official position, well, it must be state action. But the other one says out of the Sixth Circuit, well, what's the actual authority you have or the duty that you're exercising? And if it's your own personal account, it's not paid for by the government or it's not mandated by them or it's not a government account, uh, then it's not state action. So the question is going to be, um, what test is applied to find out whether it's government action or not. Now, David, let, let's talk theoretically here. And we, we know that some members of the court listen as they're driving around. If you're a public official, and I, I was a public official for years, I don't think 
I haven't been a public official except since 2016. I was a public official continuously from 83 to 2016. I never thought my social media, whether I was blogging or when Twitter came along, was a public account. But I wasn't talking about what I was doing on the California Air Quality Management District, on the California Arts Council, on the Prop 10 Commissioner at the Department of Justice. If I had been, it would have converted. I just never did. If a school board official was talking about school board stuff and communicating with some parents, aren't they communicating as a public official? Yeah, I think so. And I think that's the problem. Otherwise, um, the problem becomes you can hide behind your private account. You could do all your government business and you could shut out your constituency. You could shut out the citizens and say, well, I'm going to tell you what I'm doing, but I don't want to hear what you have to say. And obviously, government officials that are to serve the citizens. So I think you're right. If you're going to get into government business, whether it's your personal account or not, then you've got to expect that at least that portion of your post, not necessarily everything, but that portion of your post that has to do with government business um, should be a government account and should be open and responses from your from the citizens. And I want people to understand with parents, especially if you have a school board member who does not like your politics or does not like your activism, if they block you, they are preferring every parent who supports them. So information about what is going on is going to be funneled, selected. It's just viewpoint discrimination, David. This is not hard. Yeah, absolutely. And the problem is, is then you get this, this skewed look at, like, well, it looks like everybody supports what they do, and it's just me. Well, the only reason for that is we're silencing people who disagree with them. And we see that all over the place, in, including on a, on a lot of social media these days. How important is this term, David Cortman, to the ADF work? I think, I, I know you guys don't do property rights at Pacific Legal, I'm a big property rights guy, but I'm a religious liberty person first. And I think this is a and a free speech person. I think this is a huge term. It really is. I mean, we have, in addition to that case you're talking about, we've got a case up there with a licensed counselor. Uh, there's a law in Washington state that basically bans what he says when he, in his private counseling room with his clients uh, toward his client's goals. And they basically prohibit any conversation that might encourage change of an individual's sexual orientation or gender identity. Now, you could support the change if they want to change one way, um, but there's the, the government has no business censoring uh, in the room with the client and the counselor. And we've got a challenge to chemical abortion. Um, you know, that's been, that's been passed for, since, for about 20-something years. And interestingly, when we filed this challenge, and now chemical abortions, I understand, are the, are the largest amount of abortions now, it was never passed properly. When the FDA passed it, it was a political move. Uh, when they did so, and interesting, they used a shortcut for illnesses and diseases. And one of our positions is pregnancy is not an illness or a disease. So they basically went about it the wrong way. You know, that's an interesting case because I know a lot of people are discussing it as an abortion rights case. It's actually an administrative law case. I teach administrative law all the time. I've never, ever seen a shortcut like this taken in notice and comment rulemaking, David Corbin. Yeah, it's, it's really remarkable because it is not, it's not a challenge to what the FDA can and can't do overall. The problem is if you set up rules, then you've got to follow them. And in this particular case, it's amazing when you read the history, and, and, and our complaint lays it out because it goes back two decades, but basically the, the administration back then wanted to push this through, went to the company and said, hey, apply, and they said, no, we don't want to, and they told them to. And then when they passed it, they took all these shortcuts, and then all the testing they did it wasn't even on label. They did a bunch of other tests, and then when they actually passed it, didn't even follow those results. So it's really been incredible from day one. And so if you're an Administrative Procedures Act lawyer of any sort, you'll be shocked by the record in this case. ADF is there. David, let's generally go out to how, how long have you been with ADF? I mean, like forever, right? About 18, 18 years, I think. Okay, so for 18 years, you've been doing this work. And how many people work for ADF now as a salaried member of the legal team? Of the legal team, uh, I'm, I'm not even sure, 150, 200. I mean, our total is almost 500 now, so it's somewhere in there. It is the largest public law firm in the United States. It is the most effective, on the conservative side, it is the most effective advocacy firm, and it represents everyone who's got a good case that comes to them for free. David, that's expensive. And as as you've watched it grow, did you ever have any idea it would get this big, this this important and this influential in terms of moving the court? I, I really didn't. I, obviously, I hope so. I believe in the cause. And the great thing about what we do is, as you said, we, we stand with people for free, never charge them. Even one of these cases up to the Supreme Court is millions of dollars of time and attorney time, and we don't charge anyone. But it really is a blessing to stand up with people, 
to, to promote religious freedom and parental rights and, and free speech and sanctity of life um, and parental rights. It's just, it's just one of the neatest things we get to do because we see what's happening not only in our country but all over the world when free speech and religious freedom are under attack constantly. You guys defend the Constitution. We have a six-judge originalist majority, six justices originalist majority, so we can go to town now, and they know what they're doing. Now they've got their sea legs. So if you want to support ADF, go to 855-374-4123. Every year they sponsor this. This is the first year they've asked people to do it on a monthly basis. And I agree. If you become a monthly sponsor every month, you're doing good work. David Cortman, in terms of, of where you are what are you working on this year most? I know that, that that case we just talked about is not your case, but which one is your case? Yeah, so I, I have the pleasure of helping with, with most of our cases at every level, uh, but, I, but I mostly run and supervise the district court level cases. Um, so it, what's been interesting now, we, we hear a lot about um, preferred pronouns and things like that. What's, what's, what's odd is there are school districts around the country and colleges and universities that are firing professors and teachers for, for number one, not using preferred pronoun, which is basically a pronoun that differs from your biological sex. And worse than that, firing teachers if they don't lie to parents. So schools are passing these policies to say, look, we're going to have one set of records. If your kid wants to transition in their gender identity and identifies the opposite sex, at school you use the preferred pronoun, the, the, the different pronoun and name. But with the parents, you use the original one so they don't know. And if you tell the parents, you lose your job. So it's quite remarkable that's happening across the country. Common sense constitutionalism from the Alliance Defending Freedom. David Cortman, I want to thank you for your time and for your 18 years. And I want to thank everyone in the audience who either go to HughHewitt.com. It's on the desktop. Go to your big computer. It's already loading there. And we're getting it propagated across all of our mobile platforms as well. You'll see a Champions for Freedom uh, button at the top. Click that. And join. Give us a one-time contribution as much as you can, because, boy, this year matters. We've got a – I don't know if they're going to expand the legal team this year. They should. Or you can call right now, 855-374-4123. 855-374-4123. Or go to HughHewitt.com. Find the champion for freedom. Become a sustaining member of the most effective – conservative constitutionalist legal public interest law firm in the country in the world actually alliance defending freedom i'll be right back america stay tuned to the hugh hewitt show welcome back america david mccormick is going to be the next senator from pennsylvania he joins me now even though he's a steelers fan we're going to invite him on early and often throughout the year welcome back dave how are you hey good morning hugh how are you doing I'm good. I'm sorry about Kenny Pickens. I hope the injury isn't severe. Dave, last time I talked to you, we were talking about your book, Superpower in Peril. You had not yet decided to run for the Senate. Now you have. Can you tell people first who you are and then second, why you're doing this? Yeah, again, thanks for having me, Hugh. Well, you know, uh, I'm a a Pennsylvania kid. I was born and raised in Pennsylvania and uh, had the opportunity. I played sports in high school, had the opportunity to go to West Point uh, where I wrestled and uh, was the captain, co-captain of the team, and then went on to serve uh, in the 82nd Airborne Division in Iraq, and uh, and then came back to Pennsylvania and became a, a businessman and and ran a company that created hundreds of jobs. So I've had the I've lived the American dream and Pennsylvania all that Pennsylvania and America has to offer, and that's why I'm running for the Senate. I uh, think the country's headed in the wrong direction. I'm deeply worried about it, and I'm I'm hopeful that if I can be the senator from the great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, I can make a big difference. Now, uh, Dave McCormick, Pennsylvania is a very difficult place to win. Republicans have won there. Rick Santorum won there. Uh, uh, John, um, I can't remember his name right now, won there. Lots of Republicans have won in Pennsylvania over the year. President Trump won in 2016, did not win in 2020. How are you setting up the organization? Because the state party is not really in great shape right now. Yeah, well, you know, it's a, uh, it's a commonwealth uh, of, of folks that uh, are very independent minded and that they've got a long history of electing people they think can um, can represent them well and make a difference. In my case, I've had the good fortune of, of really being able to unify the party. Um, the, uh, the state party endorsed me over the weekend. Um, I've had the entire congressional delegation come in behind me. So um, the first thing you need to do is get the team together, united around winning. 
Um, my opponent is Bob Casey. He's a three-term uh, senator. He uh, He's really uh, uh, someone who has been the most inconsequential senator in the most consequential state in the country, arguably one of the most. And he's got a 98% voting record uh, with Joe Biden. He has been a rubber stamp for Joe Biden's policies. And, and as you might expect you, Joe Biden's policies are deeply, deeply unpopular in Pennsylvania. If you think about everything from uh, inflation at a 40-year high, prices are up 20%. If you think about the fentanyl crisis that killed 5,000 Pennsylvanians last year, if you think about the crime running rampant on the on the streets of Philadelphia, you saw last week, it was just a, a, an absolute disgrace. If you think about the attack on our domestic energy sector, there's a long list of things. They aren't Republican issues or Democrat issues. They're uh, American issues and Pennsylvania issues. And Bob Casey uh, has been uh, at the scene of the crime every single time when Joe Biden's put these policies in place. So that's the kind of campaign I want to run. The contrast between a guy who's been blessed, a Pennsylvania success story, and a rubber stamp career politician who uh, who hasn't led. You know, I call him Senator Casper because he is like Casper the Ghost, who's familiar to people my age. I, I know Sherrod Brown. Sherrod Brown is running at the same time as Bob Casey. Sherrod Brown is from my state of Ohio. You can't not see Sherrod Brown because he's in every scrap. He's in every fight. You never see Bob Casey. I'll bet you people can't recognize Bob Casey. Uh, will you, uh, I mean, when Lincoln ran against Douglas, he said, let's go debate up and down the state. Are you willing to do that with Bob Casey? Because that would be good for Pennsylvania. I uh, I would love that opportunity on um, on every possible occasion, because I really do, you know, stepping back from the political rhetoric, the consequences of this moment are so high. Um, we're really at an inflection point in the country. It could go one way or the other. And uh, and Pennsylvania couldn't be more important. It's uh, it's the keystone state for a reason. The majority will depend on it. And so I, I would welcome the opportunity to really talk about the future of America, the future of the country. That's what the book was about, Hugh. And I think that the ideas of the progressive left are taking us in a terrible direction. Um, I lay out my plans for the future uh, at DaveMcCormickPA.com, which will give the voters an opportunity to learn more about me. And I'm going to run a full-throated campaign about the future of America. I, uh, I'm deeply committed to it, and uh, I think I can make a difference. I'd, I'd love to be given the honor of the opportunity. There are many media markets in Pennsylvania. There's Philly and Pittsburgh, obviously, but there's Erie, there's Scranton. There are all sorts of media markets where you could go from television station to television station and do a one-on-one, -on -one, maybe with one moderator. But Bob Casey's been there 18 years, and you are new. So he has an advantage, allegedly an advantage of knowing how the Senate works. But right now, Pennsylvania is looking at not being very well represented. Senator Fetterman is unwell. We all know that. And we have sympathy for him. But he's not well. Senator Casey is invisible. Has anyone come up with the idea of really barnstorming the state, the two of you? If we're concerned about democracy, let's really have two people talk about the issues continuously for the next year. Well, you know, it's, uh, no one's talked about that yet, but of course, it's a it's a great idea. I, I announced my campaign uh, uh, ten days ago, eleven days ago, and uh, was you know was had the good fortune of of being the endorsed candidate already. Come so off to a, a strong start, but but I'm going to spend the next thirteen months doing just as as you said, uh, looking for every opportunity to create uh, a, a clear choice. The contrast uh, between someone who's going to shake things up in Washington, someone who doesn't come with any objective other than to, to really get change the course of, of the Commonwealth and the country and someone who's been there a long time and has had every opportunity to do that and has not. And, and that kind of contrast on, on all the issues would be something that I'd, I'd really welcome. And I'd look for every opportunity to do that kind of debate, that kind of, uh, of, of choice for the voters of, uh, of Pennsylvania. Now, I don't expect Senator Casey to accept that, but I sure hope I'm willing to have you both on anytime you want. I'm sure every media market in the country would be willing to have you on to do that. I do want to tell people about DaveMcCormickPA.com because not only can they contribute, but you need a volunteer network and they can sign up to be part of that. And Pennsylvania really needs a grassroots rebuild. So uh, can they volunteer at DaveMcCormickPA.com as well? Absolutely. Yeah, we'd, we'd love to get as many people involved as possible, you know, Last time, 
uh, you know, the Afghanistan um, de debacle really inspired me. And I jumped into the campaign uh, late with five months to go. Um, I learned a lot. You learn a lot when you're on the in a compressed time like that. And I learned a lot by the fact that we lost uh, by 900 votes. And so the key thing now is to have the opportunity to build the army of enthusiastic volunteers who want to change the course of America. And, uh, and I'm excited about it. I think it's going to be a great campaign. Um, I think it's going to be a great contrast. And I think the future uh, is bright, but the stakes are high here. So we got to get people involved. I want to close by talking about superpower in peril. One of the reasons I am so excited about your candidacy is we need to send veterans who actually understand the world that we are in right now. And I don't think a lot of Americans fully understand what Beijing is up to, Dave McCormick. Lay out what your vision of Beijing is, and it contrasts very sharply with Bob Casey, who, as far as I know, has never said anything about China, period. Yeah, well, it's, uh, as, as you said, China is really an existential threat. It, uh, uh, we, we had high hopes in America 20 years ago that if we brought uh, China into the, into the world uh, economic system, that it would act as a good a partner, and, and the opposite has happened. It's, uh, it's stolen our technology, our intellectual property. It's, it's acted as a, as a check on America's interest around the world. Uh, if you have, need any doubt about that, uh, Xi Jinping was in Russia about a month ago, the same week that the foreign minister was brokering a deal with Iran and Saudi Arabia. So China poses a real military threat and an economic threat, and we need to have a whole-of-nation strategy for dealing with it. There's two things we need to do. Number one, we need to build muscle at home. We need to fix our education system, which is a disaster. We need to uh, uh, promote and develop the right technologies, the right kind of military capability. Things that we're responsible for. We can't blame China for the fact that our economy is weak and our debt is staggering. At the same time, we need to change dramatically our dependence on China. Right now, 90% uh, of the semiconductors in the world that we're so dependent on um, are, are made 90 miles from mainland China in Taiwan. Um, our pharmaceutical supply chains dependent on China. So we need to we need to bring those capabilities home or in the hands of our closest allies. We need to stop investing in China. Uh, and I know something about investing, put restrictions on portfolio investment or direct investment that aids the CCP or the Chinese military. And we need to hold China accountable for bad behavior, uh, bad behavior with the Uyghurs, the human human rights abuse, horrible human rights abuses, but most notably uh, COVID. So here we are, you know, three and a half years later, and we still don't know the origins uh, of COVID, which originated in Wuhan, where the Wuhan lab is. And yet China has blocked every step along the way. So these, this is the kind of hard-nosed posture. And, and let me end with a final point. The Biden administration's weakness on the global stage, whether it's uh, uh, Afghanistan and the withdrawal there, or whether it's the ham-handed uh, dealing with Ukraine in the early days where uh, they supported the uh, uh, pipeline and so forth and sent mixed signals. That kind of weakness is what's going to invite further Chinese aggression and uh, provo provoking us on the global stage. So we need a steady hand. Uh, we need a strong hand. And there's a lot of, uh, we can do, but we need to have a whole of nation strategy for doing it. And that would be the kind of leadership that I would expect to bring to the Senate. I, again, I want to say, um, the world's in turmoil. America's uh, uh, under siege and uh, Pennsylvania couldn't be more important. And uh, yet here we have a, a senator that doesn't speak on any of these issues or make a meaningful difference. And that is why I think there's a real opportunity to uh, win this seat, but also to lead on behalf of uh, the great Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. This reminds me so much of when John Thune beat Tom Daschle in his second run for Senate, lost the first time, won the second time against an entrenched incumbent about whom the people of the state had grown weary. So, Dave McCormick, good luck to you. We'll talk to you early and often. DaveMcCormickPA.com. DaveMcCormickPA.com. Go and volunteer. Send him 10 bucks, send him 20 bucks, but sign up to be the precinct captain in Pennsylvania. I'm on all over the state. You folks in Philadelphia, you folks in Bucks County, you folks in Pittsburgh, you folks in Scranton, you folks wherever you are in, in Pennsylvania. I know you're listening to me right now. Uh, go to DaveMcCormickPA.com and sign up. 
become part of the, the volunteer force because he's actually doing it the old fashioned way. He's building an organization, not just running TV ads because he knows that doesn't work. He's a smart guy. Dave McCormick's a very smart guy. Pennsylvania and the United States would be very lucky if he was in the Senate come 2025. Dave McCormick, PA.com. I'll be right back, America. Stay tuned. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Welcome back, America. I'm Hugh Hewitt. Josh Crosshauer is editor-in-chief of Jewish Insider. Good morning, Josh. How are you? Good morning, Hugh. Happy Monday. Sorry about the Browns. Uh, Well, you know, if Deshaun Watson can get back on the field after our bye, we'll be fine. Uh, Josh, I haven't paid much attention to Matt Gaetz because he's such a squirrely guy. What is this? Is this going to work? He's just trying to divert attention from the Ethics Committee investigation into him. But is it going to work? Uh, well, look, that, that we'll find out this week because uh, Kevin McCarthy is going to find out how many uh, allies Matt Gates actually has. My, my hunch is it's not that many, but all it takes are, what, five House Republicans to really give Kevin McCarthy a whole lot of heartburn and, frankly, rely now on, on Democrats to, to bail, out, bail him out and, and, and kind of keep some sense of stability in, in the House. So, look, we've, we've, all, gee, we've all, all known for the last year that this is a narrowly divided house that McCarthy has very little margin for error. You know, up until now, he's done a pretty, pretty successful job of keeping that caucus together, even with the the small number of holdouts like Matt Gates. But now he's really being put to the test. And, and it's a real test of his political aptitude and political capital within his own party. You know, Josh, I have twice gone to the McCarthy Palooza where he gets all the donors together. I wanted to interview the new congressman elect and then the candidates last summer up in Wyoming, and they're amazing events. And, of course, Team McCarthy has built that machine over years. If the Republicans were to vacate the chair, that machine falls apart. I mean, who in their right mind does that? Um, well, certainly not for the Republican Party's political benefit, because, look, the there are 18 Republicans. That's well more than the the majority that the House Republicans have to, that live that represent blue districts, that represent districts Joe Biden won. And this has been a disastrous week for those lawmakers. Mike Lawler was doing some of the Sunday shows this weekend, and he's in a, a district in Westchester County, New York, that voted, I think, double digits for, for, for Democrats. He's been one of the he's been a pretty conservative uh, lawmaker, has a pretty conservative voting record, but is against this kind of nihilism. And he is not afraid to speak out against it. But he's also worried. You know, these are there are a lot of members, even in, in, in districts, Trump won that are narrow, narrowly uh, won by Trump. And these are competitive seats. And those are the Republicans that are freaking out over the chaos of the last week. I know we kind of punted this shutdown or punted this uh this funding for another 45 days, but this is going to happen all over again, perhaps in, in, in right before Thanksgiving. So, you know, I, I, uh, I think the biggest, you know, not only is McCarthy facing a headache, but the folks that are the majority makers, the folks that are really the most important Republicans in that caucus, the ones in the tough districts, they are just having a headache after headache. And, and given what happened uh, with their more, more far right colleagues. Do you think that the average member of the Freedom Caucus understands what happens? They're going to put us back in the minority by us. I'm a Republican. You're not. I want to make sure people understand Josh's objective, nonpartisan. I'm a Republican partisan. But if they were to remove McCarthy, that will put the Republican Party back in the minority probably for a decade. Because I just think the donors will walk away. They cannot deal with a party that's unpredictable. What do you think, Josh? Well, who wants to be speaker, Hugh? I mean, Kevin McCarthy, we learned that during the 15 rounds that McCarthy faced when he couldn't get that majority, but no one really was willing. No one wants to do the job, and it's a, a thankless job in a body that has such narrow divisions and where you only have a five-seat majority. So this is not um, not not something easy. You have to be a sucker for punishment. Um, look, McCarthy, what's going to be fascinating, Hugh, is if McCarthy does some kind of pivot and tries in the run-up to the, the next election to you know, maybe cut some deals with Democrats. So the Ukraine funding is a big, big issue, by the way, that got cut out of this 45-day continuing resolution. But uh, there's a lot of uh, pressure for a bipartisan group of Senate Republicans, Senate Democrats, and, and frankly, still a, ma- a majority or about half of the House Republican caucus and Democrats to see if they can get uh, aid to Ukraine because it's going to run out. And, and you know, the, the, the future uh, of Ukraine's ability to defend itself is really at stake. Um, so that that is another huge issue that that's at play. And the fact that that funding was not included in this 40 day, 45 day CR is really giving a lot of heartburn to people who care about national security. 
Yeah, I, I saw some of the online stuff. I think that actually funding will continue when we get down to it because the Senate will insist on it. But, Josh, I want to finish on the politics of it. There is no good political reason to do this. There is every bad political reason to do this. Will that persuade people like Marilyn Matt Rosendale, the carpetbagger from Maryland who's up in Montana and wants to be a senator? Does he understand it hurts him to vote for this? You know, there is a small element of the Republican Party. We've seen this in past shutdowns. We've seen this in in past uh, cycles that are sort of nihilist. And and the the, the thing that makes this shutdown unique, though, Hugh, or the the lack of a shutdown, but one that we almost went to the brink for, is that it really, what is it about? What is it about? You know, at least in 2013, it was about Obamacare, right? We've had policy fights where uh, funding of the government was one of the, the, the sort of points of leverage. I don't think any anyone even in Congress knows what this was about. Was it about deposing Kevin McCarthy? Is it about, you know, spending? Who knows? Like this was one of the most someone wrote that this was the the Seinfeld of almost shutdowns. And that that was me and Mark Thiessen. We both put that out on the same day in the Washington. It's a Seinfeld shutdown that tells you our demographic. It's a it's a shutdown about nothing that wasn't that never happened. So it was like perfect. But Matt Gates, he's not really a Republican. He's just a wrecking ball. Josh Crosshour, always good to talk to you. Follow Josh on the site, formerly known as Twitter, now known as at, at Josh Crosshour, uh, editor-in-chief of Jewish Insider. Thank you, Josh. I'll be right back, America, tomorrow on the next Hugh Hewitt Show. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Dwayne. Thank you, Harley. I'll talk to you tomorrow, America. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.